Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of the Ahmed Khan podcast. Today we are we are joined by Brother Shu'aib, um, who many of you remember from our podcast on evolution. Um, and actually, it was a podcast that went quite viral in Canada. Um, and in fact, really? we have, yeah, we have an uh, we have an institute called uh, the I three Institute in Toronto. Um, and I found out they were having a discussion on our podcast during one of their classes. Um, so, wow! Okay. Hang on, you're in Canada. My interpretation was you were in in the U.S. Well, aren't you I doing? Mean, I, hang on, aren't you? Aren't you in the Zaytuna College program? Well, right now I'm back in I'm back in Vancouver. I just landed yesterday. Ah, oh, um, okay, okay, sorry, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I'm in Berkeley, right? I'm, I'm living currently studying in Berkeley, but. I got that message saying that in the I3 Institute, they were having a you know big discussion on our podcast specifically. Um, so shout out to all the our followers, our listeners uh, in Toronto. Um, uh, I want to ask, first of all, bro, how's everything going with yourself? Any any new publications, uh, any big pro- big projects that you're working on? Uh, so first of all, Salaikum, thank you once again for inviting me to to your podcast. I appreciate it. It was fun the last time, and uh, uh, I, I'm sure we're going to have a good conversation uh, second time around. Um, so since we last spoke, oof, what is it, a couple of months ago, uh, a few things have happened. Yes, so um, uh, I got a contract to write a textbook on Islam and evolution. So this will be coming out with Rutledge, and it'll be open access. So that means it's free to download as well. And this will be a textbook that is uh, that will summarize the various angles of Islam and evolution, which I'm hoping that universities and seminaries will be able to teach. So that's, that's, a, that's a, a big project that's coming on. And then a few other things. So I'm working on a book on Islam and intelligent design, which is the topic of today's conversation. And um, I also, um, uh, I'm, I'm guest editing a special issue for a journal called Zygon. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Zygon is the world's leading uh, journal on science and religion. And uh, I was uh, made a guest editor for a special issue on Islam and evolution. And we have a few interesting articles in there. My particular article is co-written with, uh, uh, with uh, co-authored with uh, Sheikh Hamza Karamali and uh, Muammar Khalili, who is a PhD student. He's, he studies Ash'ari theology. His, his P- dissertation is actually on Ash'ari theology and uh, contemporary atheism or something to that effect. And we wrote a paper on intelligent design in the Quran. Um, mm. So that would be, I think, of great interest. And there are a few amazing other articles that will be in that issue. For example, Ismaili issues, uh, Ismaili perspectives on evolution. Um, we're also looking at some 12-er Shi'i perspectives. And uh, we have an article on the, uh, hikmah and evolution. So how do we understand Allah's hikmah and w- the concept of evolution? Because it all ties up with randomness and natural selection. So, yeah, several things coming up, uh, inshallah, in the next few weeks or so. Alhamdulillah, it's good to hear, man. And uh, you always have a you always have a platform here for us anytime any new publication comes out. Just so you know. Alhamdulillah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, like, uh, I'm glad that you invited me for this particular um, topic because uh, intelligent design. I think many people know me as the anti-ID guy, but um, I, I try to explain very clearly why I'm anti-ID. But we're beating mm-hmm. the punchline. Let's uh, slowly build up to it, inshallah. So, I mean, let, let's begin right there. Just give us a brief explanation of what intelligent design is. Right. So, um, I think a, a good starting point for every, anybody who's watching is whenever I mention the word intelligent design, um, they have a conception that may not exactly map onto 
what the movement of intelligent design is arguing for. So mm-hmm. the fact that the world is designed, you can argue for a designer, that's a standard, you know, general design argument. That's, that's, there's nothing, you know, um, what's it called, new about that. Meaning, meaning, trying to, meaning trying to use, uh, trying to argue that the intelligent design in the world requires that there is a designer and that designer is ultimately God, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so we don't need to qualify intelligent. We just say there's the, we can see design in the world. We can see patterns in the world. We can see complex in the world. From there, we can infer some sort of designer. And mm-hmm. that designer is argued to be God, right? So this is the basic standard design argument that has been with us since Cicero, you know, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. So there's nothing new about this argument. Intelligent design, however, is a movement and a very specific argument that is not necessarily the same thing as the general design argument. But when I speak to people about intelligent design, this distinction is not uh, made in their minds. So I wanted to make it clear that when we're talking about intelligent design, we're talking about a specific movement not the general design argument. Now, what is this movement and what is their specific argument? Um, In the course of uh, uh, the American reception of evolution, there have been many developments of creationism. So once Darwinism entered in the American landscape, you see a whole history of creationists and institutions coming into the landscape to try and argue against evolution. Um, and there, I mean, there's a 120-year-old history here that we don't need to entertain. But up and until the 1980s, um, the creationism was dwindling, right? It was dwindling because the scientific authorities were not buying it and whatever have you. And in the 1980s, a new body emerged, a new group emerged. This is known as the intelligent design movement. And it started off with people like Philip Johnson, Stephen Myers, William Dembski, Michael Behe. These are the big you know, people behind the intelligent design. Were these Christians? Yeah, all of them are Christians. They come from different denominations, right? But okay. they're all Christians at the end of the day, right? And um, so these uh, people and others started working together. They started aggregating. And um, uh, what ended up happening is they, ended, uh, they, end, they came up with an institute called the Discovery Institute, which is in Seattle. Um, And this institute has been responsible for publishing uh, uh, media outlets, uh, you know, books, articles, magazines, websites, whatever have you, to kind of make intelligent design a a scientific theory that can challenge evolution. So their argument is very specific. And and they are presenting their argument as a scientific alternative to the theory of evolution. So mm-hmm. this is the movement that I'm talking about when I'm referring to intelligent design from the 1980s in the American landscape. That's the movement. Now, the specific proposition uh, needs some context. So evolution as a theory, so this is going back to our first mm-hmm. um, discussion. So, so, so uh, just quickly, so just quickly, yeah. there's a distinction between intelligent design as a movement, which gains prominence you know, in the 1980s and, and the idea that the universe is you know, intelligently designed, right? Yeah. So um, uh, let's let's, let's make it a little more specific. So we have general design arguments. Let's just call it general design arguments, GDA, Mm -hmm. right? The universe has patterns, has has complexity, ergo a designer. And that designer is meant to be God, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's a general design argument. 
the movement is a, an American movement, right? Mostly a Protestant uh, movement um, that kicked off in the 1980s. And it's wrapped up um, uh, with a, by a bunch of people, particularly Philip Johnson, Myers, Lemsky, whatever have you, right? Now, this is a movement that I'm talking about. Now, okay. let's go into their argument. Yeah? Do you want to yeah. go straight yeah. and, and dive into that? So the argument is very simple, but to explain their argument, I need to simplify evolution again. And this is just the same explanation that I mentioned in the, in the first podcast that we did together. So evolution is three propositions. One, deep time, the earth is really old. Two, common ancestry, all biological life is related to uh, each other in this biohistorical lineage, like in the shape of a tree, like the tree of life, right? Yeah. And then finally, the mechanisms of neo-Darwinism are natural selection and random mutation, right? These are the three propositions. So deep time, common ancestry, and the mechanics. Now, intelligent design, they have made it absolutely clear that in the context of biology, their argument is against the third proposition. They are specifically arguing against the mechanisms of neo-Darwinism. So they're not arguing against deep time. They're not arguing against common ancestry. So, for example, Michael Behe, he accepts a common ancestry. He says that very clearly in all his books. He is somebody who accepts common ancestry. Many people get shocked when I say that. Because they think that ID means creationism. Yeah. That's not necessarily the case. Okay. ID is specifically a, uh, uh, an aggregated front that assaults directly the mechanisms of neo-Darwinism. So, In effect, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah so, 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 just, so just quickly, so you're saying that uh, the intelligent design movement is not trying to, um, uh, they don't contradict or find any problems with the idea of common ancestry or deep time, but the problem is with these new Darwinism mechanisms, like natural selection. Yes. Okay. That's right. That, that's okay. exactly it, right? So, and this, this is abundantly clear in their works. This is abundantly clear in their works, okay? So you can definitely check it out. Now, individually, they may have varying opinions on deep time and common ancestry. So for example, Paul Nelson, he's behind the ID movement, but he's a creationist, but he supports ID, okay? okay. By creationist, I mean he believes that common ancestry is false. So he negates the second principle. We have others like Stephen Myers, he is um, agnostic about common ancestry. He thinks there's, you know, you can have equal uh, weight for both uh, arguments. And we have Michael Behe, who admits common ancestry. He has no problem believing it. So here we have three people with three different interpretations over common ancestry. So that's a, that there is heterogeneity amongst the ID camp. But what is their sole purpose as a movement is to pretty much state that natural selection and random mutation are insufficient to explain certain biological complexities found in us and in other entities. That so, is their united front. So, so basically they're saying that because our bodies are so finely tuned, the idea of random mutation doesn't really make any sense. I never said our bodies. I'm just saying they refer to specific examples. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right? Interesting. So uh, their argument in a nutshell is that biological complexity is either the result of neo-Darwinism i.e. natural selection random mutation, or intelligent designer. Natural uh, selection random mutations are insufficient. Therefore, a better explanation is an intelligent designer. So mm -hmm. somewhere down the line, God or whatever, whoever this designer is, kind of interfered and just popped this complexity into the mix. So for example, your eye, that's one example. The bacterial flagellum, the, you know, um, there's like a motor-like machinery in, in the bacterial plasm. So they say that this is too complex. All of these parts cannot just come together overnight. It requires an intelligent being to kind of put all these parts together 
And that's the reason why we have this biochemical machinery in, in, uh, in the bacterial flagellum. So this is their argument in a nutshell. So in effect, for those of you who, who, who want a simpler presentation, there's a, this is an example of biological complexity. Evolutionary biology or neo-Darwinism at the moment cannot explain it. Because it cannot be explained by neo-Darwinism, ergo a designer did it. This is the intelligent design argument in the biological domain. Hmm. This so is what I'm specifically talking about. So because neo-Darwinism can't explain uh, these complexities, therefore a better answer is that it was there was a creator had to do it, and that creator is ultimately God. Yep, that's right. That's that's their argument. So now on this point, because I, 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 I and I know that maybe some people might might find this hard to digest. Muslims automatically think that this is an argument for God, whereas the ID proponents themselves make it clear we are simply arguing that there's a designer, not God. And Michael Behe and Dembski and Myers, all of them say that what is the nature of this designer can be a variety of things. It could be the demigurg, it could be the platonic forms, it could be God, the Christian of God, you know, angels, it could be aliens, whatever have you. They themselves say this question is open-ended from their point of view, which is why, and here's the interesting point, here's the interesting point, which is why you see in the ID movement, not just theists, you also see agnostics supporting the movement as well as atheists. Wow. Because intelligent design is compatible with theism, atheism, and agnosticism. Wow. And that is that and that is what shocks most Muslims when I when I tell them that. That's what shocks most Muslims. Interesting. You know, I, I always thought that it was just taken for granted that everyone kind of believed that there was, you know, because there's there's design, there's a designer, and ultimately if you're gonna follow that argument, you know the end result is God. But it's interesting, yes, yeah, right. Because um, yeah. I know Einstein once said that you know the whole universe is like this library filled with thousands of thousands of books written in completely different languages, and each book is in its exact precise spot. Um, and he said that the idea that they were put there randomly. Um, or just coincidentally, you know, it, it entails that there is a designer. There's somebody who actually placed it into it because there's order. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's what most people presume. So the 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 special issue that I was mentioning in Zygon, um, I make these clarifications very apparent because most, and this is what most people assume, designer means God. That's yeah. automatically assumed. But yeah. by their own admission, the biological designer of these biological complexities, it, it does not necessarily land you to God because by their own admission, they say it could be aliens. That's why atheists have no problem going behind and tells the design. Mm, interesting. Right? Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so that's the general presentation. We can now, you know, I can go into now what, what, why I feel it's problematic, but that's the general overview of intelligent design. So, so yeah, so, so now go ahead, um, explain what you think is, uh, so you, I, I assume you're saying what's problematic with Muslims uh, following this movement and their philosophy, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay good. So um, uh, I just want to make sure that uh, this is also pointed out in the beginning, because when, when I criticize intelligent design, people assume that I'm rejecting one of the following three propositions. One, they believe that I'm saying that there is no designer. Two, they believe that I am rejecting that God is intelligent. Three, they're rejecting 
or, or I'm rejecting design references in the Quran. That's what people generally assume. So when mm-hmm. I criticize intelligent design, it entails that I'm criticizing, I'm, I'm ad- admitting one of these three things. I want to make it crystal clear from the beginning. I believe that God is intelligent. I believe that God is a designer. And I believe that there are design references in the Quran. All of these three are maintained. But mm-hmm. these three do not have anything to do with the intelligent design argument. My, my criticism for intelligent design are specifically about what it is compelling you to believe in, which I personally believe is a dangerous move for Muslims. Right? That's what, I, what I'm going okay. to clarify now. Right? Okay. So, Bismillah. Bismillah. Right. Now, from... Uh, so now, now let, let, let's take a step back because um, this, this, this context needs to be here, right? Now, all of us, we, we come from a religious tradition. And I openly admit that I come from the Kalam tradition, right? So I, I'm a Sunni Muslim. And within Sunni Muslim, I believe that there are three camps, right? There's Ash'ari school, there's a Maturi school, there's the Athari camp, okay? Now, you can call Athari, Hanbali, whatever, Salaf, whatever name you want to give it, that's the camp I'm referring to, right? Now, all of these three schools have their respective differences. Some are minor, some are major, okay? And I, I'm not getting into these uh, inter-school uh, problems, but this is, this is an acknowledged fact, that there are three schools and there are valid schools, alhamdulillah. Whatever the differences are, I don't want to get into. Now, from a Kalam point of view, from an Ash'ari point of view, which is the model that I personally adopt, and I make no qualms about it, that this is the perspective that I'm coming from, the fundamental starting point for proving God's existence is not design, it is the contingency argument. It is the fundamental starting point, right? Now, so for those of you... Give, yeah, you just yeah, go ahead and just briefly explain the contingency argument. Yeah, so, so for those of you who are unaware, right? Contingency simply means that um, uh, there, are some, there are things that are created can exist in a variety of ways, and they can exist or cease to exist. So for example, this pencil could not have existed. I could not have existed. The books around me, the table, me and Ahmed, we could not have existed, right? All of us are open to non-existing. And as a result of that, we are contingent entities. There is nothing intrinsically necessary in us for us to exist. And as a result of that, because we are contingent things, there must be a cause of this contingent thing to come into effect. And if you go down the causal chain, eventually you have to go back to something called wajib al-wujud, the necessary being, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, in a nutshell, the contingency argument. Now, the contingency being must have certain entailments. It must be omnip- uh, 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 omnipotent, omniscient, uh, immaterial, whatever, etc. have you. Now, I don't want to go into that detail, but this is laid out in Kalam works. You know, you mm-hmm. can find several treatises where this is mentioned, mm-hmm. okay? But this is a, the fundamental starting point for the Kalamic framework. The fundamental starting point is that anything that exists is a contingent entity, and that contingent entity takes you to wajib al-wujud, which is the law. This is the mm-hmm. fundamental point. It's a straightforward deductive argument. Are there some counter-arguments? Of course there are. Are there responses to, their, to those counter-arguments? Yes, there is. So mm-hmm. you can find this in the literature, both in the Kalam books and in contemporary philosophy of religion manuals, but we don't need to get into that. So the foundational idea here is that contingency is the primary principle. So no matter that, and now, now the question is, what can, when we believe in God, what is the nature of that God? What can God create and not create? Now, the God that the Asha'ara believe in is very simple. God can create anything as long as it is ja'iz, aqlan, 
as long as it is logically possible. So if God, if, if God wanted to, he could create a human being with a dragon head, horse's arms, and a tail if he wanted to. That, that is completely possible because it, is, it does not entail a logical, excuse me, a logical contradiction. So God could create a world which is even more designed than ours. God could create with more complexity. By the same effect, God could create a world which is simpler than ours, right? God could create a world with, with absolute chaos. So there's no laws whatsoever. So if you look at this universe, it's literally no mm -hmm. laws, nothing whatsoever. That is the kind of God that we believe in, that God can create anything that is jaiz aqlam, logically possible, conceivable. That's, so, the, that's the maxim. So, so usually, you know, an argument that people try to use against God, against an all-powerful uh, God is the famous, can God create a stone that he can't lift, right? Yeah. And yeah. So, 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 so go ahead. Yeah, so the, 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 the immediate response is that that's an illogical question, right? Mm -hmm. The question itself is flawed. It's like asking, can numbers sleep? Numbers are not the kind of entities that sleep or stay awake. You're asking, you're, you're predicating the wrong thing onto numbers. Similarly mm -hmm. here, when you say, can God uh, uh, lift something that even he cannot lift? It, the question itself is fundamentally flawed, right? It's an mm -hmm. illogical statement. And that's why it is not a counter argument of sorts when it comes to the contingency argument. There are others, but like I said, that is a, a digression from the focus of our conversation. What I'm simply articulating for time being is that the foundational principle of the Kalamic framework is contingency. If something, even, even if God created a world with just a simple, and, I, and, and I'm sorry for being vulgar, but I want to express this very carefully, if with a single poo particle and nothing else existed except a poo particle, that is enough to start the contingency argument. And the reason why I say that is because it lacks design. There's no design in this universe. It has a, it, it's just an excrement, but that is enough to start the argument. In a world that is totally chaotic, with no design, with absolute chaos, that is enough to start the contingency argument. Mm. So this is the foundational principle of proving God's existence. It is mm. a contingency argument. Contingency argument entails there's a wajib al-wujud, there's a necessary being. That necessary being, there's a follow-up argument, which means that he must be one, it must be omnipotent, omniscient, etc., etc. So This is the contingency argument. So, so I, I want to share some thoughts with you. So, the so just so just to recap, the contingency argument can also to be easily understood as you know the dependency argument, the idea that everything is dependent; it cannot be, it cannot you know exist with itself. That ultimately there has to be this one entity which is not contingent, which is necessary. Yes. Yeah. And that's yeah. why, and, and that's ultimately where you know in the argument we say that that entity is God, the one necessary. Yeah. Um. But you know, I think I think you know you said that the best argument that we should use is the contingency argument, um, and this is something that Muhammad Hijab highlights in his book as well. Um, to me, you know, it really depends who you're speaking to. So I think, for example, the the argument for intelligent design, if you're speaking to a child, you know, mm -hmm. if you're speaking to a person who doesn't really want to engage in you know deep intellectual inquiry, you know, I think it's an I think it's an excellent argument, and we have the story of you know, the Imam Abu Hanifa, where the atheist came to the Abbasid court and he said, you know, prove to me the existence of God. And the, the, the king said, okay, go call for Abu Hanifa. And hours passed by and the man waited and he said, your greatest scholar, you know, he's, he's terrified of me. 
And then Abu Hanifa came and he said, I'm sorry for being late, but I was trying to travel the Euphrates River and I didn't have a boat to get across. And so I waited until, you know, lightning came and it struck the tree and the branch fell on the floor. And then ultimately it kept changing and turned until it turned into like a perfect boat. And then I sat in it and it took me across the river by itself. And the man responds and says, you know, that's that's illogical. How could that, you know, how could that boat be transformed into, the, you know, how could that piece of wood be transformed into this boat? And then to which Imam Abu Hanifa responded and said, how, how do you think this entire universe could have come from randomness yeah. if you couldn't even believe this? So I think in my personal experience with my interactions with children, with teenagers, it really depends on who you're speaking to. Um, because in certain instances, the intelligent design argument actually works better than contingency. But if you're in the realm of academia, then I think the contingency argument is definitely the better bet. So again, I would like to distinguish what you are describing is not intelligent design. You're describing the design argument, which I'd like to distinguish from the intelligent design argument. Okay. The intelligent design, the ID argument is this group argument that I'm going okay, to okay, okay, discuss okay. in a second. So now in, in light of contingency, design is never negated. I don't negate design. I make it crystal clear. When I see the universe, I see laws. I see structure. I see complexity. That is an indication that there is a designer of some sort. None of that is being negated whatsoever. Okay, that, mm -hmm. that is crystal clear. All right. So I don't negate that. Now, the reason why I start off with the contingency, however, is because I want to show what are the creative powers of God. Because the problem with design argument, now I'm talking about the design argument, not intelligent design, the design argument in general. Okay. The problem with design is that an overemphasis on design. Forgetting kids, teenagers, forgetting all of that. I'm just saying now raw facts, right? When you overstress the design argument, whenever science now talks about probability, randomness, that automatically in people's minds means, oh, it's not God. Hmm. It's not God, right? So design begins to limit you in terms of you appreciating what God can do. As I said earlier, in the contingency argument, even if there was no laws of nature, even if there were no laws of nature, even if there was nothing whatsoever, the contingency argument would work. It would kick off. What does that mean? It means that when Allah creates something, complexity is not a necessary feature of that creation. In all the worlds that God can create, think of all the possible worlds. Design is not necessary in all of them. But what is necessary in all of them is the contingency aspect. Okay. So that's why contingency is the foundational principle for any possible world that God can create. Right? Okay. So, and that's the reason why whenever I mention that in science we have things like probabilities, randomness, a coin toss, you know, you know the electron distribution around the atom, that's probabilistic. We don't know for yeah. definitive where it is, right? But does that mean God does not know? Of course not. It's a contingent mm -hmm. thing. It's a contingent thing. So I believe that this overfocus on design can blind Muslims that whenever they encounter something that doesn't fit their equation of design or their fit their understanding of design, mm -hmm. it automatically okay. questions their worldview. Mm -hmm. You right? know, so so Dr. Shreve, let me ask you about this this term of randomness. Isn't randomness just a term that we use to describe something that we can't understand? That we don't have yes. an explanation for? Yeah, so so excellent, right? So now we uh, we always believe that anything that is created is the result of the effect of Allah's irada, the will mm -hmm. of God. Okay, so one of the entailments of design is there's a will attached to it. Allah is willing everything, but Allah can definitively 
will something that from our perspective looks random, but he's still in charge. He's still controlling the affairs, right? So yes, randomness is maybe a, a lack of insight from our part. There's no doubt about that. That is a possibility, right? But I'm saying that even if there was actual randomness in the world, that the world is completely chaotic, it wouldn't undermine God's existence a bit mm-hmm. in light of contingency. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the design, if, you're, if, if your theological model starts with design as a starting point, oh, now your theology is in trouble. Because mm-hmm. now you're seeing things that don't fit in design. How uh, can you yeah. tell me that evolution works with random processing? Mm-hmm. Are you calling my God stupid? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of argument you see. Okay. That's what you see. So, so, so basically you're saying that if one were to take the design argument as its foundation, and then we see all this randomness in the universe, or we see these flaws, then ultimately the entire argument is debunked. Whereas if we yeah. take the contingency argument, we're not really relying on design at all. And we're just really focusing on things that are dependent and things which are necessary. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so okay. even if even if there was even if the world is quantum mechanics, even if the world is chancy at the foundation level, even if there are multiverses, the string theory, whatever you throw the contingency argument, it'll kick off. Whatever mm-hmm. you throw. Whereas with a design argument, not necessarily so. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So this is the reason why this is generally a now, we're not talking about ID yet. I still haven't gotten around to ID. I'm just talking about the, the design argument, capital D yeah. design argument, right? So that's that's the general weakness of design. Another weakness of the design argument is that the designer is the best thing that you will get at the end of the argument, right? So yeah. let's let, let me give you a basic construction. This is William Paley, right? You walk into the middle of a desert, you come across a watch, right? He didn't use desert, I think. I think he used something else. Right? So <laughs> I'm just in the UAE. So, so you, you come across the desert. There's a watch there, right? This watch looks complicated. Therefore, there must be a watchmaker. The world looks complicated. There is a world maker, right? Now, to go from a world maker or a designer to the omnipotent God is a gap. Yeah. There is exactly. a logical gap there. Right. So, for example, I know, and and I'm going to dovetail into the idea argument in a bit. But long story short, if the intelligent design argument is something that we're entertaining, their argument is evolution cannot explain a certain biological complexity. Therefore, a designer did it. Now, that designer, by their own admission, is compatible with atheism, theism, agnosticism. That means that the designer could be aliens, could be another physical thing. Now, somebody could say, come back and say to me, well, hang on. Well, where did those aliens come from? Didn't God create them? But the thing is, you've then left the design argument. You've mm-hmm. gone back to the contingency argument mm-hmm. until you go back to the necessary being. You know, so then I, my point is, why bother with the design? Why exactly, bother with the design? Exactly. I, I, you know, I've, at university, I've, uh, I've had some debates and I, sometimes I would invoke the design argument. And most of the time I would get, uh, you know, I would get to the point where we could agree that there was a designer. But then trying to get the jump from designer to God, you know, requires a lot yeah, of work, it's a, a lot it's of a speculation. Yeah. It's a stretch. It's, it, exactly. It's a stretch. And this is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like, I, there's no problem with looking at the world and inferring a designer. Mm-hmm. But then, now, in, 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 in logic, in mantak, if you want to be not rigorous, the, the, the jump from the, the designer to God, there's a gap there. And this is recognized even by theists in philosophy of religion. It's even recognized. So I'm not saying something that is alien to the tradition here or alien to the, 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 the literature. This is completely well known. There's mm-hmm. a gap here. And which is why intelligent design, which we'll get to in a second, is compatible with atheism, theism, and agnosticism. 
Right. So that is this is these are my issues. So one, the, the idea that design limits people in terms of um, if they encounter something that doesn't work in their conception of a designed world, it automatically triggers a negative reaction because it, it, it now undermines their understanding of God. Mm -hmm. The second problem is that the design argument never actually gets you to God. It just gets you to a designer of sorts. Mm -hmm. These are two problems with the design the, the design argument in general. Now we can move on to intelligent design. Ahmed, yeah, so, is that okay? So, so yeah, just 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 a quick recap. I just want people to know that you know the universe. You know, we're both we both believe the universe is remarkably designed. You know, there are these mm -hmm. remarkable creations in there, um, and it's from the Quran where Allah says that when you reflect upon the creations of the heavens and the earth, uh, you become you realize that I mean, Rabbana ma that we we know that our Lord didn't create this except with a purpose, with a reason. And it's, you know, it, so it's, it's something that hits home, especially for me, you know, as somebody who loves nature is I can, I can look at the beauty of nature and see that it intuitively, I know that there was a creator behind this. There was a designer and I inferred that designer is God. So yes. not rejecting the principle. We're just saying in today's, you know, academic rigor, um, it's, it's best to kind of, it's best to leave this argument and to move towards the contingency one. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. Right. So, and I know to be clear. Uh, and, and I want to make sure this is clear. Contingency is the foundation head for proving God's existence. Once that cushion yeah. is established, you can then say, okay, this contingent and this this wajibal wujud is the designer of all these complexities. That mm -hmm. is the source. But uh -huh. to start from design and then say that's God, that is the problem in the uh -huh. absence of contingency. Okay, so start that's the foundation is contingency, and then it builds. Uh, the design argument can be built on top of it, but not the other way around. And be cushioned. I I, be cushioned. I prefer the word cushion. Cushion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, I can go ahead now. Yeah. Now let's 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 go to the intelligent design argument. Now, as as I um, briefly summarized earlier, they have a specific problem with the mechanisms of evolution, particularly neo-Darwinism. In their mind, natural selection and random mutation, which as I stated before, both in our first podcast as well as in the beginning, at the beginning of this podcast, that um, uh, they believe that natural selection and random mutation are insufficient. Therefore, a better explanation, so remember better, I'm mm -hmm. using an inductive argument here, relatively better argument is a designer, okay? Okay. So look at the eye, look at the bacterial flagellum, look at those examples, right? There is so much complexity here, it's impossible for there to be a natural explanation of this complexity. This is their argument in a nutshell, right? Mm -hmm. Now, why is this a bad argument, right? Why is this a bad argument? First and foremost, right, as I mentioned, from a contingency point of view, I do not need to point to gaps in nature to prove my God. I don't need to do that. Whereas this argument is relying on gaps to prove God's existence. Or if, if you want, now, th now they themselves make it clear that this, this designer could be anything. Muslims automatically assume it's God. Yeah. Muslims automatically assume it's God, right? Now, now, now here's the thing. Let's say this entity that you believe does not have a natural explanation today. In 20 or 30 years or 40 years time, if there is now a, a viably scientific explanation, what happens to your faith then? Mm -hmm. Do you see my point? Now, yeah. let's let's extrapolate this to a very pertinent question in the context of evolution. The whole issue of the origins of life. So the origins of life at the moment does not have a, a, a viable scientific explanation. 
there have been advances in the 1960s, but at the moment, not there hasn't been an adequate theory in what these first, how did the first life start? How did the first life form start? Because so these what, proteins. What's the dominant one? What's the dominant Sorry? one? What's the dominant the theory? The predominant explanation is there was some kind of prebiotic soup. So there were proteins flowing around in this, you know, a mixture. And then these proteins kind of merged together, you know, and some kind of assembly formed and it led to the first DNA or whatever have you. Something along those lines. I don't know the details myself, but that's the general idea that people have, right? Now, at the moment, we don't have an adequate explanation. Now, the question is, people are saying only God put around this mixture because it's so it's so improbable for natural things to come together for the first life form to exist therefore god is responsible he intervened this is a miracle creation basically that's what that's what they're saying now the problem with that is first and foremost the quran neither affirms nor negates the thesis it neither tells you to believe in the origin of life scenarios created by god nor does it negate that possibility the quran makes it crystal clear that it has it is silent it has nothing to say on the origins of life. That means it is possible for there to be a scientific explanation of the origins of life. It is possible. It is possible. Now, some people will say, okay, hang on, hang on. Are you saying that complex things in reality could have scientific explanations? Well, let's look at the Quran. The Quran talks about weather. The Quran talks about um, the plant growing. The, talk, uh, the Quran talks about various physical phenomena. Don't we have scientific explanations for those? Don't we know how a seed grows into a plant? Don't we know how the clouds form and, and give us rain? All the things that Allah mentions about design, about a design, we have scientific explanations for them. No one bats an eye. Zero. No one bats an eye. Similarly here, with the origins of life scenario, we have some vague indications that life starts from water or whatever have you, but that's it. That's it. Now, if one day scientists come up with a scientific explanation, right? How, how are you going to work with that? Does that mean your theology is now undermined? Of course not. Because if there is a, if there is a scientific explanation, it doesn't matter. It's contingent. Contingency means wajib wujud. And if there isn't, God did it. No problem. The thing is, we shouldn't commit ourselves to being falsified unnecessarily. This is the problem with the intelligent design argument. That they are point to current gaps in nature, current gaps in, 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 in evolutionary biology. And they're saying, that's complex, that's complex, that's complex, that's complex. That's Therefore, these complexities cannot be explained by near Darwinism. Okay, fine, fair enough. It may not be explained today. But what, in what if in 20 years' time? What if in 30 years' time? What if in 50 years' time? I believe, and this is, this is my, now me being honest, I believe if Muslims commit themselves to the ID argument, which they have, in massive numbers they have, you are opening yourselves to a position where you might be taken down because of a of a future discovery in science. Mm -hmm. I personally will not even flinch if there's an origins of life scenario. It wouldn't it wouldn't shake my faith even a second. But so, I know for a lot of people, mm -hmm. their whole faith rests on that case, mm -hmm. which is why we also have the possibility of being anti scientific in our mm -hmm. community. So so you're saying that with, with the design argument. With because of new findings within science, intelligent design. Now we're looking at intelligent design. Okay, okay. With with intelligent design, um, because of because of new findings that could occur within science, um, it could become more difficult to rely on an argument like this. So, can you explain the relationship? Is there even a relationship between science and the contingency argument, or is this merely just philosophy? Right. Okay. So 
uh, before we move on to that part, uh, before we get to that state, I just wanted to make sure this is crystal clear, just to summarize everything I said about ID. ID posits gaps in nature, which at the moment science cannot explain. They will argue that it's improbable, it's unrealistic. But the thing is, if God wanted to, he could have made a universe with very improbable things that still conform to a scientific law. We can mm -hmm. neither negate that nor affirm that. Tawakuf. Remember Tawakuf? Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we we're open about that, right? We don't need to constrain ourselves to a particular point. So my issue with ID is that you are open to falsification, and that is an unnecessary step to take given that you have contingency. Now, you asked a question, Ahmed, about what is the relationship between science and the contingency argument? Well, the contingency argument permits contingencies that are that have regularity. We live in a world where there are contingent there are regular contingencies, the laws of nature being one of them. Okay, that's clear. So as, so if there are contingencies that have a regular functionality, we can do science. But can God create a world where there are irregular contingencies? Yes, we can. Yes, he can. He can create a completely chaotic world. So God can create worlds which are which have a scientific aspect to them. And God could create a world where they have no scientific aspect to them. What does it mean to do science? Discover patterns and laws of nature at the end of the day. Yeah. Right? That's the function of science. So God can do both. That is why whether God does miracles or not, they're both contingent things. Mm, okay. You see? So, so because what do we, we believe that miracles do not have a scientific explanation. Right? We don't believe that they, they, they could have a scientific explanation. Right? So things that don't have a scientific explanation and do have a scientific are both contingent things. Simple as that. Mm -hmm. My point is that now, now some of them are saying, oh, hang on, well, if you believe that God can do things without a scientific explanation, then why are you criticizing ID? I'm saying because it's compelling you to believe in a gap which, do, which we do not require you to believe in. The Quran doesn't force you to believe in those gaps. Mm -hmm. It doesn't require you to believe. So why are you opening yourselves to falsification? Mm -hmm. Why? So even so, you touched on this, this topic of miracles. Um, in, in our creed, we believe that God is behind every single action. God is the one that creates, and there is no, nothing contains intrinsic power uh, or intrinsic quality without, uh, except that God has it. So, yep. in the Quran, where Ibrahim salam, is thrown into the fire, the fire does not have intrinsic property to burn, but rather Allah gives it the ability. Uh, exactly. Ability That's occasionalism. That's occasional one on one. Occasionalism, right? So, the idea is that the fire does not contain. So, when Ibrahim salam, is thrown into the fire, the reason he's not burned in the fire is not because, uh, you know, the, the, the natural state of fire just stopped burning. It's because Allah didn't give it the quality to burn. And that's how we kind of justify miracles, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You remind me of another thing. So remember I told you that when it comes to design in general, that if you overemphasize design, even above contingency, the moment you throw something in there that doesn't look designed, it can kind of shake people's faith a little bit. There is one example that I can give you, very clear example. People can say, hang on, okay, if evolution is true, evolution, um, evolution, evolution biologists say that in the course of history, 99% of species that ever existed have died. Mm -hmm. Why would God create such a wasteful process? This is one example. Now that seems like an inefficient, inefficient God. It seems like an inefficient God. But from contingency, it doesn't matter. Because first of all, the idea of efficiency is a human construct. If you have a limited amount of resources, you have an idea, a benchmark of efficiency. But if you have Allah who is infinite, how do you measure efficiency of an infinite God? Mm -hmm. And more than that, if it's efficient or inefficient, does that mean God's existence is gone? Of course not. Mm -hmm. Right? Because, now some people say, well, what about Allah's hikmah? Allah is all wise. 
I'm saying, can Allah do things that don't make sense to you? If you say yes, then you have to admit that this is a possibility. If you say no, you have a problem with understanding Allah's hikmah. Because mm-hmm. you are now forcing Allah's hikmah to the human construction of Allah's of hikmah. Exactly. This is a problem. Exactly. And so there's the a paper coming out in the, in the, in the special issue um, where Allah's hikmah is discussed in evolutionary context. So there's a paper by David Jalazo. He um, looks at some people who use Allah's hikmah to argue for evolution and use Allah's hikmah to argue against evolution. And you can see all of these understandings of Allah's hikmah are personal constructs. Whereas they, because because they don't gel with the uh, aqidah understanding, the Sunni understanding of what Allah hikmah's, uh, Allah's hikmah means. It means Allah is wise. He puts things in their place. But whether me or you can judge them, that is not up to us. That's up to him. So mm-hmm. he can do things that don't make sense to us. That may not make any apparent sense to us. But he can do it if he wants to. Mm-hmm. But And again, you're saying that it's better that we just focus on the contingency as a foundation yeah. rather than just keep delving into design. Exactly. Exactly. I see so many foundations. Now, I, I, I don't get me wrong, right? I believe I, I'm with you that for kids or you know for young audiences, yeah, design is a good way to go forward until they are able to grasp more abstract concepts like contingency. There's no doubt about that, right? However, as I said before, if that's all they've been given, or if that's all they're resting their faith their faith on, we have we will we will see. I think a, a crisis of faith maybe in the future. And I'm, mm. I'm trying to avert that crisis. So you remember um, the whole scientific miracles in the Quran movement that kicked yeah. off in the 1960s, right? Yeah. So that movement played a significant part for people to enter Islam. But that movement has also now played a part in people leaving Islam. Ah, one, 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 reference, one reference that I have is the number one, I think me and you can agree, the number one da'i right now is Hamza Sources in the English world, correct? Yeah. I think I think Muhammad Hijab has surpassed him. Okay, okay. I mean, he's not the new gen. I'm talking yeah. about the past gen. Yeah, Hamza sources yeah. is the number one guy. I'd say for most people's right now. Yeah. Now Hamza sources, he himself was backing the scientific miracles in the Quran. He himself was doing that, right? Mm-hmm. And then he did a U-turn. Right? He went against yeah. the the movement. Right? Yeah. Why? Because he himself stated that people are leaving faith because they realize that these are weak arguments. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying the same thing I see in ID, the exact same thing I see in ID, that they're, uh, they're compelling you that, look, this is a gap, believe in this, and people automatically assume it's God. They don't even think that this is a designer, okay, but people think it's God already, right? Now, if there's a scientific explanation, not only will some Muslims lose faith, they might be so aggressive in criticizing the science that they might look like anti-scientific people. And that's fine. If you want to be anti-science, that's absolutely fine. But I'm saying that this is an unnecessary step to take from a religious standpoint. Why mm-hmm. commit yourself to something which is not necessary to begin with? Why? Mm-hmm. Why, 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 why? Explain to me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's an excellent point. It's an excellent point because, so for those who don't know, the, there are verses in the Quran that, talk about, that deal with a lot with you know, the natural world and which many people have used to justify you know, scientific miracles. And there are you know, these, these remarkable things in the Quran. Um, and it led many people to come into Islam. Um, some people I personally know, but like Shuaib has mentioned, there's many people as well who are looking at these things. And because of the philosophy of science and the way things are changing, they're beginning to question many of these things and question their faith. And I've had, yeah. <clears throat> I've had people call me about this saying, you know, the Quran is saying this, but modern science is saying this, you know, why is there a contradiction? And they're having a crisis of faith. 
And so it's interesting now that you're saying the same thing is happening with the ID movement is that people are saying, you know, oh, like there's there's this remarkable design in the world. But then they see some of the scientific literature and then they just begin to question their own faith. And, you know, people are leaving because of the again, you know, the relationship between science and Islam is such a massive topic. Um, And, you know, many people are either coming into the faith or they're leaving the faith. And so understanding the relationship between the two. And if, it's interesting that you're saying that ID now is something that can take us on the same path as the scientific miracles. Yeah, that's what, that's how I see it. This is my personal evaluation. People may disagree with me, that's fine. But this, I've presented my reasons and, and I believe this is the case with ID. Hmm. That, um, and, and, and like again, I want to make sure this is clear because I don't want people to misunderstand me. I am not saying that I reject design. I'm not saying that Allah is not intelligent. And I'm not saying that there are no designer from the Quran. In fact, I argue the contrary. Allah is a designer. Allah is Al-Hakim. He's intelligent. Uh, he's all wise. And there are design references. I'm simply saying that we do not need to posit gaps in nature uh, or gaps in science to prove God. Because anything that is contingent, whether it's design, simple, complex, whatever have you, proves God to begin with anyways. So even if there is a scientific explanation, no problem. If there's no scientific explanation, no problem. Do not overcommit to something which is not required for you to begin with. Mm-hmm. And again, it all comes down to, you know, depends, you know, like I think the saying of Imam Ali, right? Speak to people at a level that can understand. Yes. And so for, yeah. you know, a lay person, you know, your average person, the design argument, you know, it works. It's something which is very intuitive. You know, yeah. there's a famous story of Imam Razi where he's walking with his, you know, his students and then there's this old woman who looks at him and says, you know, who is this man? And the student says, this is Imam Razi. You know, he has a hundred proofs for the existence of uh, God. Yeah, several arguments for God's existence. Right? And then she says, you know, if he didn't have a hundred doubts, he wouldn't need a hundred proofs. And Imam, <laughs> Imam Razi says about her, he says, have the faith of old women. The faith of, you know, our ancestors, you know, of our parents, our grandparents, who they just intuitively believe. That the world that the world has a remarkable design and that there is a creator and children have it as well, right? But like again, within the academic rigor environment, for those who are studying, you know, biology um, at the universities, it's important that you know you have the base that 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 design is not that. And I'm gonna let this sink in for like a couple of days and think about it. But like contingency is definitely the best option we have put forward, um, yeah. and that we can build a design argument under the contingency one and not fall under. Um, you know this and i didn't even know the difference between the intelligent design because when you first told me you're a bit critical of intelligent design i'm like whoa whoa i'm like this is going to be an interesting Who did i invite on my podcast <laughs> i'm like he's not getting invited anymore um but now it's it, it, i mean it's very clear to both of us that you know we both inherently believe there's design in the universe we believe there's a designer but we just don't think that this is the best argument within a specific environment and speaking to a specific audience yeah yeah yeah, yeah, that's that's okay. I'm just yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So yeah, that, that's that's my opinion on intelligent design in a nutshell. That mm-hmm. uh, I believe it's a it's a it's a dangerous move, uh, and it's an unnecessary move, and we should be careful. Now I understand that there's a temptation with the intelligent design argument. Number mm-hmm. one, as you said, it's very intuitive. It is yeah, you follow it very easily. Wow, there's something so complex. God must have done it. God may have done it, but there might have been a, there might be a scientific explanation. There is no competition between the two mm-hmm. right because we, we believe so so people the id people at least the way they're presenting their argument or their arguments are being utilized is 
either God did it or there's a scientific explanation. So there's a conflict. Whereas we believe if there is a scientific explanation, God did it. If there's no scientific explanation, God did it. It's mm. never God and, oh, sorry, never God or science. For us, it's always God and science. That's it. Mm. That's the formula. Exactly. exactly. Um, and you know, what I want to ask you now is because this is kind of like the foundation of kind of like everything that we're talking about today. But I was wondering if you could briefly talk, explain the philosophy of science um, and how and the nature of science, because people like to think that science is this entity which leads to objective truth, you know, with a capital T. Um, mm. But does science really can science really do that or no? Right. Okay. So that this topic about whether science can do that or not is is, is a huge conversation to, to to be had on its own. What I'll do is simply go over one aspect of philosophy of science because within philosophy of science there are like at least 13 different points and 13 different lessons that we can have because I've taught it. I just I was teaching this at Cambridge Muslim College. <laughs> um, so um, the, you have to be clear that um, ev th there are different areas of expertise, right? People um, have expertise in religious studies, people have expertise in philosophy, people have expertise in science, right? Now, the nature of science is fundamentally an inductive exercise. We are using regularities in the world and our beliefs in those regularities to reconstruct and define patterns in, 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 in nature, right? That's fundamentally what science is trying to do. It is how with those regularities and investigating those realities, we are able to make medicine. We are able to make planes fly. We are able to send astronauts to the moon, right? That is regularity. That's what we believe on. Now, um, within that, of course, there are certain um, sciences. So, so remember, science depends from one discipline to another, right? So there are some sciences that we can observe right here, right now, right? Like, for example, I can do a physics experiment right in front of you and make a conclusion. Some sciences cannot be observed physically. So, for example, historical sciences like evolution, archaeology, you know, that kind of stuff. That is us looking into the past through what we have left of the past, residues. So different sciences have different kind of inferential values. And this is where you begin to see that there is no the scientific method. There are many scientific methods, depending on the nature of the discipline mm -hmm. and the variety of inferences involved in the equations and the, construct, the construction methods and whatever happens. Now, given all that I've said here, there is a well-known debate in philosophy of science known as the scientific realism debate. Okay. Now, scientific realism is pretty much this open-ended question. When we talk about a scientific theory and we commit to a specific theory, what exactly are we committing to? Are we committing ourselves to the epistemology of that theory? So the way that this theory is, being or is organizing our information of the world? Or is it actually inferring a metaphysical commitment? So if evolution says that we, we have been linked through common ancestry, is that a metaphysical commitment or an epistemic commitment or both or whatever have you? This is scientific realism. On the opposing camp, you have scientific anti-realism. This idea that science doesn't actually get us to commit anything. It just organizes facts like a machine and just makes sense of things. But there is no truth depicting components behind them. So one mm -hmm. example is instrumentalism. This is one subcamp in anti-realism. And this idea is that scientific theories are just like instruments. You use them to kind of get your mathematics going, but that's it. There's nothing more than that, right? Mm -hmm. And there are arguments, both sides. We went over this in, in, uh, with, came, with the students that came from Muslim college. It was very interesting to see where they, where they stood in the picture. Some were arguing here, some were arguing here. There was no consensus in the class. So even within a classroom, you'll find variation. Now, um, my, my, with this brief illustration of the scientific anti-realism and realism debate, the point here is very simple, that can science give us absolute truth for everything? Not necessarily. We do believe that there are some things that are beyond the grasp of science. 
God being one of them. God is not a scientific thing that we can study. He's not a scientific object. Angels, mm -hmm. demons, these are all things we as Muslims believe, right? Mm -hmm. We believe in the soul. It's not, it's not something that can come under a microscope, right? It just mm -hmm. can't. So, of course, there's some things that we believe that are beyond the scope of science. But what is within the scope of science, and this is an open question, like what exactly do we consider as within science and outside of science? This is where things begin to kind of bubble into difficulty. And this is where it takes time to digest. And, and that's why understanding your theology and learning the philosophy of science, and in my experience, also doing a little bit of science, going into laboratory, getting some taste of what's, what it is that scientists do, you, are able, you will be able to kind of see exactly what is a balanced treatment of this area. Because what I find is people get too extreme on either side very quickly, right? Um, scientists will say miracles don't exist. Religious folks will say, oh, science is all gibberish. It's all inductive. We don't need to worry about it. Well, the laptop you're using is based on, on science. Do you uh -huh. want to reject that? Right? So we, we have to be careful that there, there has to be a balanced treatment here. And so that's mm -hmm. why it takes time. And the problem that we have at the moment is that we have experts in all over, in, in, in every discipline. But getting this interdisciplinary expertise mm -hmm. is now, I think, that the challenge of the future. I believe that the young ulama, like yourselves, uh, Ahmed, you know, people who are stepping up to become scholars of the future, they need to kind of really acquaint themselves with these disciplines. And it's hard. It's not an easy thing. It's very hard because you have to dabble into various pieces of literature just to kind of start understanding how you're going to make a sense, make sense of all this. And that's why interdisciplinary is hard work because you have to learn the language of science, the methods of science, the language of philosophy, the methods of philosophy, and the language of theology and its methods. And that's not an easy process. Mm -hmm. um, so I do believe that it takes time to appreciate and to understand. And this is an, an ongoing conversation but I hope this gives you some insight into how this landscape needs to be navigated. Simple answers are easy to do, but they're very hard when, when you drill into them. So mm -hmm. I'd say uh, avoid the temptation of simplicity and be, um, uh, do have that motivation to engage with the complexity. Mm -hmm. this that's, that's an excellent point of, you know, most people falling onto either camp. Some people today just completely take science as their God. Um, and completely deny anything. And there, and I think with both, and then you have the other side, which is uh, completely anti-science. And I think, to be honest, with both, with both sides, there's an intellectual dishonesty that's occurring. Um, yeah, yeah, people are not yeah. really sincere in what they're looking for. They're just trying to confirm their own biases. But, you yeah. know, historically, if we look at the Muslim civilization, we see that they were a people of balance. Um, these were people who, like Ibn al-Haytham, who, you know, who was a scholar, but at the same time was in love with science. And he ultimately became the founder of modern day optics. And he actually writes in the beginning of his book, he says, I'm doing this to understand the will of God. Like that, that's the reason why I'm doing it. And so mm -hmm. we have Ibn Sina and the, and the work that he did on medicine. Right. But it's like, but they understood that, you know, these two realms are not really at odds with one another. And take we should take both of them together, and you know, like you said, have this interdisciplinary study, which is, to be honest, very difficult because in yeah. today's age, it's kind of like you either go down the realm of Islamic scholarship or you go down the realm of the secular sciences. But yeah. I think places like Cambridge Muslim College, places like Zaytuna, they're really yeah. trying to bridge these two worlds together and produce people who are scholars, but at the same time scientists, people who are scholars, and at the same time they can engage with modern philosophy um, and the refutation of many of these ideas, but it's very hard work, like you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very hard. And, and, and don't get me wrong, like it's, it's it, and that this is the reason why working with other people is, is good, 
Um, so, like for example, I in no shape or form would consider myself a Kalam expert. I'm, I'm far from being a Kalam expert, right? Which is why I work with people who are an experts in Kalam, right? So, for example, this paper that I'm working with is it's, it's with Sheikh Hamza. He's one of the mm -hmm. leading Kalam scholars today, I would say, yeah. um, who has a full grasp of Kalam, scholastic theology, and how to kind of relate it and put it into a matrix of intelligent design. That required an amazing collaboration, and we're actually working on a book together. Oh, okay, this is this is something I can maybe announce. Okay, I can't. <laughs> so um, we have a book that we will be working on, um, and it's it's. I think it'll be a book that hopefully will be an amazing uh, reference point for a lot of scholars uh, and scholars and students of seminaries. And the book is called Islam and Science: A Sunni Kalamic Approach. So all our findings we're going to put into this book. What how we inter inter interpret the philosophy of science and the sciences and kalam and put it into a rubric is what we're going to hopefully uh, distill in this in this work. Mm. There are four people in this book, me, Sheikh Hamza, Nazif, David, the four of us. And inshallah, this will be out maybe in two years' time. And we hope that this book will, maybe it, it may not be definitive, but we hope that it will be um, a benefit. A to, to, yeah, a starting point to, to the, to the uh, scholarly tradition of kalam. Mm. So, you know, what recommendation would you have for someone who's interested in you know, studying both, you know, the Islamic tradition, but also really, yeah, really interested in science and like particularly these, these philosophical topics like evolution, right? If somebody wants, somebody sees the work that you're doing and says, you know, I'd love to be, you know, be engaging with something like that. What recommendations would you give for someone like that? Is there a specific institution he would need to study at? Is there a specific background that he might need? What would you recommend? So, I think we need to have a, a reality check in the sense that as Muslims, we are far behind in what Christians have done. We yeah. don't have any infrastructure in place at the moment, right? Um, and, and that's still a gap. That was a gap 20 years ago. It's still a gap today. And I, I, I think it'll still be a gap in the next few years until until something changes drastically. Like we need drastic changes, particularly in mentality. We have amazing Muslim entrepreneurs that can provide patronage, but we just don't see it. So I, I think that um, uh, that reality check needs to be in front of you. And I, the reason why I'm being this harsh is because you, at the end of the day, have to earn a living. And while you want to go chasing your dreams, trust me, it is a long and hard sacrifice. I've been doing this for six years. I work as a professor, but I do this on this. This is actually my main job, I would say. The teaching is, is, is the side time job for me. And that's only to put food on the plate for me and my family. But it's hard. It's very, very hard. Um, so the, the, I mean, the, the realistic option that I can tell you is, have a primary expertise with which you can make money because mm. no one is going to support you. No one owes you anything. Life is not going to give you uh, a, a plate full of food. That's not going to happen, right? I mean, you, you do see exceptions, but that's not going to happen. So I would definitely say have a primary job which, through which you can earn. Once that is established, then I recommend start um, looking and exploring. So definitely do, for example, you're in the perfect situation. You're a student. You're, you have all the time in the world, right? You have support, whatever have you. Now, for the, at the, the youngest age is the best age to start learning. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the best time to start learning because responsibilities are not on your plate. You don't mm -hmm. have to earn a living. You don't have to worry about families and duties and all of that, right? None of that is on your plate. So that's the best time. There you can earn degrees. So for example, there are multiple online degrees now in science and religion, in philosophy of religion, in philosophy of science. Edinburgh, for example, has an online master's in science and religion, which you can do from anywhere in the world. In fact, the, their department informed me that the second largest cohort that, that, uh, uh, that applies to that program are Muslims. First wow. is Christians, but the second is Muslims. Right, wow. but here's the problem: that program, at the moment, as it stands, is entirely Christian-centric, 
Muslim perspectives coming to the fore slowly, slowly, right? So we need to learn our tradition, learn these new problems, and then have an appropriation period. And this is what's happening right now. This is what I see right now happening. So there's a lot um, that, that, will, that is being done to kind of set the bridges for young scholars like yourself, like other people, who when they walk onto the plate, they can then take the torch further than us, right? That's, mm. the, that's the plan, inshallah. But it is hard, and I'm, and I'm not going to shy away from saying that. It is, it is a tough line of work. So in terms of how you choose your expertise, I'm saying you just have to dabble. I mean, it took me a while for me to finally come to this area that, okay, I have a scientific background. I'm interested in Kalam. Let's marry these two worlds, and there you go. This is how I kind of landed in this territory. Um, mm. I think people will need to make up their own minds. Some people may not be interested in Kalam. They might be interested in fiqh. Like how, how can I understand modern medical developments at fiqh? So for example, we have technologies like ectogenesis, artificial wombs. Should we do that in, should we do that in Islam? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is, is that something that's Islamic? Because imagine a world, imagine a world, just imagine this, Ahmed, yeah? Imagine, I don't know, 250 years from now, a world where women never have, uh, they never go through pregnancy and they never have labor, ever. Right? Imagine that kind of world. Yeah, what yeah. Did that, doesn't that look a little bit weird in your head a little bit? <laughs> and the thing is, what, who would push for this? Capitalists. Because it means that you remove maternity leave, you remove maternity benefits, you have uh -huh. a full-size working force, and babies are being produced yeah. without people get, taking time off. Uh -huh. You see my point? Yeah. The long-term consequences. So, so these kinds of questions, the fuqaha will have to deal with, not us. Mm -hmm. You see? So, so all these interesting areas are bubbling, and, and, and like I said, it's, it's going to take time, I think, to kind of make sense of it. And I think my intention is hopefully to kind of build up at one point in time an infrastructure that we can hopefully latch onto. How that infrastructure will look like, when will it be done, I'm not sure. I'm still kind of figuring things out as I go along, but I do hope that rather than making something from scratch, we can implement something that's already there. So for example, if you have seminaries, can we incorporate a program where these ulama are learning these things side by side? Hmm. That is, I think, a more workable solution. Because hmm. this way, you don't need to relocate. You don't need to move. You don't need to go anywhere. It's already there you know, at your front door. But it's just now adding something that's there. Now, the thing is, who will accept? Who will not accept? Whether they'll consider this valid or not, etc., is the open question. So for Cambridge Muslim College, for example, they're very open to taking modern uh, questions and, 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 and ideas and putting them into their program so that these young scholars are able to express and identify these challenges and you know work with them. Zaytuna College is another one. But I want to kind of think a little bit bigger than this. These are two prominent institutions, but they're not the only institutions in the world. Mm -hmm. Can we think of a vision that's just bigger than these two? And that's, that's the way I'm thinking at the moment. Mm. And I think ultimately everything starts, like you said, like, like with publications. That's kind of the foundation. And with many yeah, of yeah. these sciences, um, like we look at, for example, medicine, prophetic medicine, there's really no literature in the English language which is foundational to explaining what is the relationship. I know uh, next <coughs> in January, there's a book coming out by Dr. Padella on Islam and biomedicine, awesome, yeah. right? Which is, yeah. which is meant to be like the first foundational piece, but like that's a new science which is emerging. Everything within science, uh, like Islam and science, I think your book is really the first, it was kind of like the, at least for me, it was like the wake up call on evolution in Islam. Like the first actual tech, like, like book that I said, okay, let's see what the various positions are. Let's see what's actually going on. I'm done with these YouTube videos with Dr. Zakarnik, <laughs> who I love, but you know, his simple refutation and stuff. I'm like, okay, now we've started. 
And so, and with this psychology as well, Cambridge Muslim College this, this year published their book on Islamic psychology. So I think we're beginning to see now like many of these new sciences being branched out. So it's kind of like an exciting time. But like, like you said, you just want to lay down the foundation so that others can come and just really build upon. And what's interesting is with many of these topics is the classical scholars have said something about it. But it's like, yeah. for example, in psychology, there's been there's been many of classical scholars who've written on it. Um, Dr. Bedri has written on uh, one of the scholars. Um, Malik Bedri, right? Islamic psychology. Yes, Dr. Malik Bedri. Prophetic medicine, Ibn al-Qayyim wrote a book on prophetic medicine. But how do we take that, create a modern foundation for it so that, you know, young people can come and just be the torchbearers, like you said, and just build on these ideas and take yeah. it to the next level? Yeah, but it, but there's 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 more than just taking that. It's also about how do you appropriate that because yeah. it's not it's, it's a matter of um, definitely being true to the tradition, but also being true to the aims of the tradition as well. So if we take something copy paste from the 13th century and apply it today, we may not get very far, right? Yeah. Because there's some ideas that may need detracting, removing, or may need to be updated. So for example, in Ashari Kalam, there's this well-known idea of atomism, right? Now, yeah. this was this idea is a metaphysical or a physical picture of the world that they developed in lieu of certain problems that the philosopher raised. Okay, hylomorphism, whatever have you. Can you explain but what atomism is? Atomism is simply this idea that the world is made out of fundamental particles, right? Uh, and, and these particles are the same, they're homogenous, and they just have different uh, uh, properties attached to them that make different things different. So for example, these are made out of pink particles that have pink attributes to them. This is a pencil, and it's made out of atoms that have the properties of being wood in them, etc. right? That's mm -hmm. that's a very very well-known thing in, in, in Ash'ari Kalam, and even in some matters accepted that, right? And the question is, is this something we need to commit to today? Can we commit to string theory? Can we commit to multiverse? And the obvious answer is yes, we can, right? It's, there's no problem if you do Now the thing is, so, so there's now even a conversation happening. What of the tradition should we leave behind because they're historical artifacts? And what can we accept that's new? Mm -hmm. Yet still maintaining the umbrella of Kanan. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, the idea of appropriate, uh, appropriating um, and seeing what things you know what, what things what what ideas we need to take and build upon but also i think you know there's there, there's one of my favorite hadiths is the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said al hikmatu dalatul mu'min fahaythu wajadaha fahuwa haqqu biha right yeah, the wisdom yeah. is a lost property of the believer wherever he finds it he is most deserving it's, of it and you know you look at you look at the western civilization today they're you know they're at the cutting edge of many of these sciences of psychology of physics of mathematics of of you know uh, uh, astronomy and it's like just take the good that you can from them and bring it into your own tradition because too often it's kind of like oh that's just their ideas let's not even engage with it but they have a lot of brilliant ideas that we really need to be taking from and you know you know finding how we, it can bridge with our own tradition right because they've they've lost the metaphysics right so they have the physics but they've lost the metaphysics so we need exactly. to combine the two exactly right yeah. So that's oh. that, that's 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 that, that's one example of what we mean by saying truth to tradition, but not necessarily being bound by that tradition. Mm -hmm. And it, it all comes down to I I think it, it can all be related back to ID, right? Where we we we, st we stay true to our tradition because ID is this new movement that's come out. And um, like you said, it seems very appealing at the outset, like they're arguing for God, right? And it's like a very similar argument to us. But you have to be very careful. 
to be clear, we think they're arguing for God. Yeah. Oh, we think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We think they're arguing for God, but we have to we have to take the, these things with a grain of salt. Um, but I do think, like on like on a closing note, I do really think it's a very exciting time in the realm of uh, Islamic scholarship in the English language. And every year now, you're beginning to see these new books coming out in English of kalam, of uh, philosophy, evolution, medicine. And Sheikh Hamza Yusuf said that, you know, in the in the coming years, he really believes that English is going to be the dominant language in the in the Islamic civilization for scholarship. That every book is going to have to be written in English just because of the audience. So yeah. I think it's an, I think it's I the think lingua franca. Exactly, but I think it's a really uh, exciting time because now. For, for people who don't know Arabic, you know, you're still going to be able to have access to portions of the tradition and be involved with some of the big topics and see how people are really yeah. engaging with them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 100%, no doubt about it. So if you have if you have any other uh, last thoughts, by all means, you can share. Otherwise, we can uh, just close out. Any, do you, do you want to reaffirm that you believe in the design? <laughs> right. So, yeah, just to, just to summarize again, um, to make sure that um, the R ideas are clear and misconceptions are gone um in my humble opinion contingency is the foundational principle with to, with which we, we should all rely on because that is the key point for believing in god's existence at least in my opinion if you believe design argument on top of that fine fair enough then it's you can easily identify the designer with the necessary being but if you have um a theological construction that's primarily built on design in the absence of contingency it does have certain um, uh, faulty measures to it, which you need to be wary of. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no design, that doesn't mean that God is not intelligent, doesn't mean that there are no references in the Quran to design, all of those are still maintained. It just maintains, the stress here is put contingency in its place and put design in its place and you will see that it makes a much more of a coherent narrative. Now, coming to intelligent design, intelligent design is a very specific movement with a very specific set of propositions to its name. It argues that the mechanisms of neo-Darwinism, in other words, natural selection, random mutation, are insufficient to explain certain biological complexity. Um, therefore, a better explanation is a designer, which they don't necessarily identify uh, as God, but we automatically presume is God. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, if you presume it's God, you have, um, you know, basically went beyond, you've gone beyond the argument in terms of yeah. what it's arguing for. Now, if you say, well, if it's aliens, then where did the aliens come from? Well, then you fall back on the contingency, which just goes to show that contingency is foundational. And even if there are aspects in the universe that don't look designed to us, that may look random to us, or may have some kind of inefficiency component to them, right, or may look wasteful to us, it doesn't matter one bit. God's existence is not eliminated because of those things. These are just maybe ways of God expressing this reality as a limited creation, and Wallahu why he created that way. That's mm -hmm. the key thing. We do not try to undermine a narrative by us trying to guess God's purposes. Allah is Allah knows his own wisdom. We may have insight to those, that wisdom sometimes, but on most occasions we don't. We don't know what Allah's full plans are with us. We know that he's expressed so in the Quran, but other than that, Allahu mm -hmm. And that's why I personally prefer we stay away from ID. It is a dangerous narrative for Muslims, despite that people think that I am you know, I'm I'm actually arguing for, you know, something abhorrent or something that's kufr. That's not what I'm arguing for. I'm just trying to say, be careful with ID because it is scientific miracles on the Quran 2.0. It may jeopardize your faith, particularly with the advancements of science. That's all I'm saying.
Mm. If you don't, if you accept it, great. If you don't accept, that's fine. Alhamdulillah. But this is my full perspective on intelligent design uh, uh, from an Islamic perspective that I occupy. Mm. The intelligent design movement. Well, the intelligent yeah. design, the, the movement itself, not not uh, design itself. Um, yeah, so design is maintained. I believe that yeah. the world has has a design yeah. like feature to it, no doubt. Mm -hmm. I, th I think you might need to say it a couple more times just so people actually understand that you're not against Yeah, no, 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 it's so cool. So in, in the book that I'm working on, Islam, uh, Islam Evolution, Intelligent Design, I, I, will, I, I spell these out very clearly. Um, and, and it's because I, I do see that there's a need here to kind of make sure that this is as transparent as possible so that this will be inshallah emphasized in future works and in future presentations inshallah 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 always a great time having a discussion with you bro um likewise there's there's a lot of interest um particularly in my audience of the relationship between islam and science and trying to bridge the two and so uh that's why i always love to have discussions with you um and thank you for inviting me on no worries no worries thank you for making time out um inshallah we look forward to your next publication you know we, we make dua that allah makes it successful that it's it's a means at uh at, at bringing clarity to our community not confusion inshallah so with that we'll conclude jazakumallah khairan assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh